Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Dr. Erica Brown. Dr. Brown is the Vice Provost for Values and Leadership at Yeshiva University and the founding director of its Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs Herrenstein Center for Values and Leadership. She previously served as the director of the Mayberg Center for Jewish Education and Leadership and an associate professor of curriculum and pedagogy at the George Washington University. Erica is the author or co-author of 15 books on leadership, the Hebrew Bible, and spirituality. Erica has a daily podcast, Take Your Soul to Work. Her book, Kohelet and the Search for Meaning, by Magid Publishing, is now available. Her last book, Esther, Power, Fate, and Fragility in Exile, was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. Erica has been published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Tablet, First Things, and the Jewish Review of Books, and wrote a monthly column for the New York Jewish Week. She has blogged for Psychology Today, Newsweek, Washington Post, On Faith, and JTA. She has a master's degree from the Institute of Education, University of London, Jews College, University of London, and Harvard University, and a PhD from Baltimore Hebrew University. Erica was a Jerusalem Fellow, is a faculty member of the Wexner Foundation, an Avichai Fellow, and the recipient of the 2009 Covenant Award for her work in education. She was the scholar-in-residence at both the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington and the Combined Jewish Philanthropies of Boston and as the Community Scholar for the Jewish Center of New York. She currently serves as a Community Scholar for Congregation Etz Chaim in Livingston, New Jersey. Without further ado, Dr. Brown. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. Uh, Dr. Brown, thank you. Um, first, I'd like to know, and I'd like the audience to know a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, your methodology in studying Tanakh and, and teaching, as well as your affiliation with Rabbi Sachs. Well, that's, that, those are a lot. I don't know how much time you have. Uh, but, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I came on the show because I want Judaism to be demystified. So you've set up a lot yeah. of expectations for me personally. Nice. Uh, and it's really, it's really a pleasure uh, and an honor to be here with you. Um, I'm actually um, taping this from my home in Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, I, I, uh, where I've lived for the past 20 years, uh, we raised our family of four now family of eight since my children got married and, um, we have five beautiful grandchildren. So that's the most important thing to me. And that's really the center of my life. Uh, everything else is commentary as, uh, Whitehead said, um, you know, in terms of, in terms of, uh, the work, let's go to Rabbi Sachs first. Um, I married an Englishman. So uh, I left the colonies for a little while, uh, for a few years. And those were years when Rabbi Sachs, who was not known to me when I was a student at Yeshiva University as an undergraduate, uh, Rabbi Sachs was the principal of Jews College, which was a, uh, you know, a, a small, it was, it was created in the late uh, 19, in the, in the 19th century to be a rabbinic training grounds for rabbis and has expanded to offer degrees in Jewish studies. And so I was a student, I, I taught there and I was also a student of Rabbi Sachs's and uh, it was a, it was a relatively small place. So I felt that um, I was able to study a number of courses with him. I taught uh, in his shul at the time, he was a rabbi in Marble Arch, and my husband and I would go regularly, and I would do, uh, I would teach, and I ran the sixth form center, which was basically for juniors and seniors in high school, uh, who were going to what we would call prep schools, um, and they uh, in America, and they wanted to have a strong Jewish education, and so on Sunday we would do that, and Rabbi Sachs often came in to speak. So. Uh, you know, professionally and and personally, I spent a lot of time with him in those years. We worked with students. We did Shabbatonim uh, and, and really got, got a front seat as he was preparing for the chief rabbinate when Rabbi Jacob, Lord Jacobitz was, uh, you know, was in the process of stepping down. Amazing. We're, we're, we're so like, uh, we're so impressed by you, but also we're, we're obsessed with Rabbi Sachs. Yeah, I, I, I share that obsession and I feel very, it's a real privilege to be able to promulgate his teachings. I mean, he's he was so prolific 
that we, you know, we, we, it would take a lifetime to go through his Torah and thank God so many things are coming out now that were either not published or coming out in different languages, you know, in French and German and Arabic and Hebrew. And so it's beautiful as you see different populations sort of understand the impact and the influence. And, and frankly, it also increases the sadness because there's so many situations world situations, world events where we need his optimism now, we need his hope, we need also a religious, a spiritual framework uh, that is deeply particularistic, but also deeply humanistic to understand the world in which we live. And I, I think I think we need other people to step up to that um, and and to lead by his example. But, you know, he was one in a generation. And, and so as much as I think about his influence, I also think about the immense uh, loss for me, I would say in many ways he was uh, perhaps the most influential person in my writing career because uh, I was always a reader and I was always a writer and I grew up in the home of a writer. But, um, you know, when you see Rabbi Sachs's study used to have in his what he would call a garage, used to have a shed, right? It was like he repurposed it and it was his garden shed. And, you know, he he just had mountains of 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 books latest sociological studies psychological studies you know studies in philosophy and he was very well read up to the moment and he put these lenses you know he had certain lenses with which he saw the world and they were all it's almost as if the world was refracted through his judaism as he would he would say how do i how do I take the values, the the psukim, the pieces of Talmud? How do I take the philosophy and sort of bring all that to bear on the current situation that we're in? And in that sense, I think he very much uh, worked worked with his students to think in that in that way, and also to understand you have to have a lot of input to have a lot of output. You just got to read a lot in a lot of different disciplines, and then keep pushing ideas out. Um, and so I, I, that's really in many ways the, the gift that he gave to me is um, is maybe it's even the restlessness, the intellectual restlessness, uh, the desire to know more and do more and think more. Yeah, very well said. And, and he, um, you know, I think we really needed him for the post-COVID world. And, the, you know, he warned about the rise of populism and all these things. So as yeah. just even, even just as a political commentator, not just as a religious leader, he, he was very important. Um, so I'm, I'm glad we're able to, to give him. Especially now with what's going on in Israel, you know, and yeah. you say to yourself, uh, I mean, you know, there's been, I mean, I, I don't think democracy is going to die. I don't think that the there's going to be a civil war and the country is going to fall apart. I really have more faith in Israel than that. Um, I, I do think that it requires some spiritual wisdom. Um, and I, and, and I don't know where that will come from. You know, I, I, I don't know. Very important point. So um, I, the second part of that question was about your methodology. Um, just if you can briefly tell us, you know, how you approach Tanakh um, and, you know, we can go from there. Yeah. Well, you said one word, which is a problem, which is briefly. Um, I think, <laughs> I think, you know, when you're dealing with a text with this kind of history and this kind of influence, not only in Judaism, but of course in Western civilization, it really asks you to go slow. You know, just and I think that's really important. I think that's what the interpretive process is. It's putting speed bumps on words, on letters, on vocalization, right? A cancellation note, right? And when you think about it, um, we've been around, thank God, as Jews for a long time. So we've had a long time to do this slow work. Um, and I think I think it is slow work to to understand and bring a wealth of sources. I do talk a little bit about it in my preface to Kohela, just wrote for Magid, uh, been my uh, publisher and really close friends um, who've really been very supportive and um, and very wise in their guidance. And I, I tried to explain a little bit of my methodology in Kohelet, and I compared it to Sir Kenneth Clark, and he wrote about uh, the art critic. He wrote about how you look at a painting and all the different levels of looking at a painting. And I, I guess I'll share that with you, but um, I do develop it a little bit more in the book and certainly you should read uh, uh, Kenneth Clark in the original to get the, the best understanding. But he talks about sort of the initial intake when you see a painting, which is he describes it as you're going 30 miles per hour, you know, on a bus passing by. So you just sort of notice what's the size, what's the basic coloration. And then you sort of, you know, slow down 
and then you begin to understand the different parts of a composition, how an artist chose to depict what scene, what did he leave out of the frame, she leave out of the frame. Uh, and then it, it's at that point when you're sort of saturated aesthetically with something that you begin to put in some of the intellectual components which keep which sustain your attention. So, for example, you'll say, oh, this was painted in Delft and what was happening politically in Delft at that time? Or this uh, or dogs appear in these paintings. Uh, and this was true for paintings of this century. And this is what the dog symbolized or lapis lazuli was used. It, you, you're getting those intellectual pieces. For for Clark, the intellectual pieces kept him focused on the painting, as opposed to saying, oh, "I'm kind of bored," or "I'm just you know the sensory uh, appeal has has waned for me. I'm moving on to another painting." He's just like, "Stay there." And he says, and then he takes all of that knowledge, that intellectual knowledge, the compositional knowledge, the sort of initial intake, and then he becomes totally saturated with it. So I would say. That's a pretty good description of a of a method for me, which is looking at the text without mafarshim, looking at it to raise my own questions, looking at the entire the pasuk, then the entire chapter, sometimes multiple chapters. Um, it'll be using a concordance and looking up lots of different places where a particular word appears, um, and looking at different places for for comparison, and then you know, and then the the real slow work begins, which is what does this parish say, and what does that parish say, what does this modern scholar say, um, you know, uh, what what novel did I read where a similar concept came up, and how would that help me? Um, that doesn't go into a book necessarily, but that's what goes into the study and the prep. More, you know, I I I've read. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Magid Magida studies in Tanakh series in general. Um, and something I've noticed about your works with them, it's it's funny because you you first right now mentioned that um, you start off kind of reading it in in a sense of quiet, meaning you just you're just reading it and letting it absorb and kind of like reflect mm. and all that. Um, and then you go into the commentaries and everything. And one thing I've noticed is actually in terms of the scope, I don't think another writer has the amount of scopes of commentaries that you bring into every single chapter. It's like you will bring in, it's not just Jewish commentaries. It's not even just scholars. It's its like every possible, you know, any possible thing that can be said <laughs> on that pasuk. That is very kind of you to say, but it's actually not true. Um, and I think one of the things you learn is, you know, you finish something and then I, I, my book of, on Esther was going to print. And all of a sudden I realized it was a book that I did not, that just came to my attention. I was like, literally hold the press. And it, of course there's always hold the press because there's always going to be some new thing. And I think that, that actually as a writer, it's a very, very hard thing. It's a, it's almost um, excruciating the feeling that you, you know, you've sent something off to print. You know, what if you make a mistake? Right? I make plenty of mistakes, you know, and, and someone didn't catch it. Uh, or there was there was a big piece of scholarship and someone says, oh, you didn't put that in. So, you know, that that inner critic, which is always telling you, what did you not do? Um, so, I, you know, and it's amazing because what you would you would you express before was is actually before you even get into all these commentaries, which I like get overwhelmed every chapter. I'm like, whoa, um, you actually just take a look at it and kind of absorb it, you know, organically before anything. So that's that's really cool. Um, okay, so let's get into Kohelet, your new book. Um, Kohelet is a very strange book. Not just I'm not just saying it. The the, <laughs> the, the sages themselves have have pointed towards this, and the it's it's a very strange book in the biblical canon. One of the difficulties in approaching Kohelet is placing it in a proper genre. Uh, sages, sages and scholars have differed in their opinions regarding the nature and the genre in which Kohelet should be placed. Could you elaborate on the different possible genres Kohelet might fit into and what your ultimate opinion on the matter is? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm going to burst the bubble right now. I don't have an ultimate opinion. I have opinions, right? Um, and I think part of that is because, and that here, here we get, um, I'm not going to demystify, I'm going to mystify uh, okay. or, or problematize. I'll say problematize the text. I think we know what narrative is. 
we know what legal writing is and we know I, I don't like this term in scholarship you know writing occultic writing which is writing about leviticus writing about things that that took place uh, sacrificial texts texts about um texts about the mishkan so kohelet really we're not really prepared there's nothing really that prepares us for it except for mishlei we have you know we have another book which contains quotations um i do some contrast with eov also with the book of job um which is which is different it's very different than the book of mishlei but 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 worth worth uh, noting here so you have all of these aphorisms and they're put together and you say well what's different but like just call it proverbs call it proverbs too or call it depressing proverbs right um you know it was pro the book of proverbs seems everything seems so didactic if you're wise this is going to happen if you're a fool that's going to happen if you have a bad neighbor Life's going to be difficult for you, you know. If you have a good neighbor, so you almost uh, and I've I've been doing some writing on Mishlei. You you almost it, it's almost predictable, and Kohelet is anything but predictable. So on one hand, you could say it's a book of aphorisms, but actually, in many ways, it's testing aphorisms. So you'll have modern commentaries, and this was very helpful for, for me. Is Kohelet looking at a, a, a you know it, almost in quotations, looking at a common piece of wisdom in the day and saying. Is that true? Do you think that's really true? So when I was, if I, it's as if I said, uh, a stitch in time saves nine. Does it really? What does that mean? Is it does that does that really work? And I think actually, as a modality of exposition and curiosity, it can't be beat because you're saying to yourself, why do we accept everything that we hear or every sort of common wisdom that when those things may or may not be true? The problem is that we don't always understand what's in the what's in the quotation marks what he's trying what he's trying to test out so on the one hand there's it, 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 you could say it's a book of proverbs but it doesn't really fit neatly in the in the in the proverbs department it has what you might say is like one narrative portion maybe um it has the you know it has a chapter two where he talks about i built this and i built that and you know and, and um I call it a thought experiment in the book and I compare it to other thought experiments. You know, let me see. I mean, I, I wish we could do this test, frankly. You know, I have so much money. Let me just see if it really brings me happiness. Let, and I, I always wonder when you're reading chapter two, how many years did it take to make the vineyard, to build the buildings, right? In other words, was he, is this the retrospect of a, life, of a lifetime? Uh, and then these are his conclusions. So I, I think that, it, and, and then there's some poetry, you know, the poetry of the the time poem in chapter three. Um, so it it really elides any sort of easy, um, easy genre. Um, one could say, and sort of, I'm I'm drawn to this. This was a manual for courtiers. Uh, was, when you look carefully, most people recognize the more depressing verses and. And that would mean that they haven't truly deeply studied this book. When you deeply study this book, there are a lot of observations about human nature that are not necessarily positive or negative. They're observations. And there are and there are also positive words of wisdom. Here's, you know, here's what you here's what you should do, here's what you should avoid. Um I I think that that he's directing a lot of his writing to people with wealth and people with authority. Right, they have some kind of governance. So I think that's um yeah. But I'm I'm gonna go with the it doesn't fit in a genre, and that's okay. It's genreless. It's genre is it's genreless. It transcends genre. <laughs> it transcends or frustrates, you know, depending on, depending on who's learning it, I guess. Fascinating. Bensi, you wanna take take the the next one as well? Sure. Can you speak to the unique style and structure of Kohelet and how these features inform us about this book? Yes, that's a similar to the genre question in the sense that different chapters have different structures. So for example, um, uh, you know, when we start the book, it does not start as a typical biblical book would, which locates the author, maybe the tribe, the, the, the geographic location. Right? We don't have any of those details. The name, Ani Kohelet, I don't know, who's who's Kohelet? You know, it's almost as if we assume we know who this person is. Um, and and it's almost like you sort of jumped into a conversation midpoint. Um, that's what the book feels like a lot. Um, and, and so in a way, I imagine that the author 
had done this at different time periods. This isn't like one, it doesn't feel like one continuous text. So for example, the 12th chapter, which I spent a lot of, lot of time on, um, uh, the ruined estate or the ruined house, right? The, the, the decomposure of the human body or perhaps the entropy of the world. Um, that's clearly written with a very different mindset. And then almost midpoint through, Kohelet starts talking about the book and what he was trying to do, right? And he tells you, he's trying to, um, you know, test out uh, these these proverbs and what goads people, right? What sort of provokes and inspires people versus what what people, you know, don't need. And some of his advice is quite repetitive, right? You know, it's not a collection of aphorisms. It's sort of him going through life and saying, you know, in chapter four, I talked a little bit about problems of inheritance. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to that in chapter six. And then I'm going to do it again in chapter eight. I thought it's a great idea when you can't really solve one of the great mysteries, especially about injustice in the world. Let's go have a sandwich. And I'm going to have that sandwich with my wife. Right? And I can't really solve things, so I'm just going to enjoy myself. And that doesn't happen in one one chapter. It doesn't happen in two chapters. It happens repeat, in repeated chapters. So I think you're getting a sense of him sort of cycling in and out uh, the way that all of us do in a lifetime. We all, you know, we're, we're all asking certain questions at different stages of our lives and the questions get more sophisticated and sometimes the answers aren't apparent and we're just going to live within the struggle. And as Rilke says, we're going to love the questions. You can, you can only love this book if you love the questions. Right. And you can say, I can hold contradiction in my hands. Like I can I can hold it. I can uphold it and understand that I'm not going to tie everything up in a bow. It's very American to tie everything up in a bow. Sure. I think Israelis, I don't know the Israelis, they, they don't have a word for happy ending. You know what the happy word ha, ha, the expression happy ending is in Hebrew? Happy, happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, it's not a, it's not it's not a cookie cutter. There's no there's no light at the end of the tunnel when you're reading this, right? And that's yeah. okay. And yeah, that's, that's okay. And, and that's, that's, that's similar that's to Eov in a way. That's similar to Eov in, in a way because Eov is also about you know really struggling with the questions, not necessarily right. getting answers. Right. The the only the the really big big difference, I and mean, there are many differences in the in the safe in this farm, and I, I write about them. The big difference is that Eov had something happen to him. Kohelet makes things happen, right? And so Kohelet has much more agency in 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 outcomes. And one of the things that's very interesting, um, someone was talking to me recently this week about materialism in the book of Eov, and uh, you know, and whether or not the you know how how materialism features when Eov loses everything. I said. Yeah, but he gains everything back at the end of his life as if Ke'ilu, like, I, I did I did well and I got all this reward. I think Kohelet would have been maybe even repulsed by that. Like, it's not so simple that you you pass the test and then you hit the jackpot, there's 10 lemons, whatever, and you get, you know, you get a million dollars. You know, I, I, I just don't, I, I think there's a certain brutal reality and I'm, I'm okay living in a brutal reality. It's not it's not pleasant, it's not comfortable, but it is life. It is life. Absolutely. You um in the introduction you mention how I think especially in the beginning if I'm not mistaken uh Kohelet uses the word I a lot. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was a really interesting part maybe if if, if I can ask you to elaborate on that part. Um, yeah, the, you know, the, uh, the eye of Kohelet, I appears more times in the book of Kohelet than than any other Sefer. So you can see that this is one person, which may, which may mean it's not representative of every person or, you know, because he's, he's writing this in sort of a memoir type of fashion uh, and not making a claim that my experience means your experience. You know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very conscious of this as a teacher, um, that uh, you have to always be careful when you when you when you speak, because you can only speak from your experience and you can only understand the world from your perspective. And so I think a lot of teachers, because they have authority, they use that authority, that I-ness to say, I know better and I know. And let me just make this deposit in your mind and your heart and then you will be like me. I find that very frightening as an educator and move far away from it and i think 
when you look at Kohelet, I think there's something intellectually honest about saying I. Um, Rabbi Sachs has a different view of this. Um, Rabbi Sachs talks about the I, uh, you know, the consumer I, the self-absorbed I, the narcissistic I of Kohelet. It's like, it, it's, you know, it's no wonder that he's not happy. And he mentions uh, this really magnificent letter that the Lubavitcher Rebbe um, sent to someone. Uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was asked this question about someone who had fallen on un unfortunate circumstances and was very upset and difficult family and financial circumstances. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe took the letter, circled the, the word I, um, you know, in every time it, it appeared and then sent, and then just sent the letter back like that, basically <laughs> suggesting if you want to get out of this state of depression, you need to, you need to be less self-absorbed, right? In other words, you, you it, your contact with the other, with community, your care about the other will take away in some way minimize the self-absorption and i think that i think that that's you know that that's fair it's a beautiful you know it's a beautiful lesson um i i don't read the eye quite as negatively but i can see why one would yeah okay <laughs> very well um so at its core kohelet is all about the search for meaning this question drives the book from beginning to end yet in your introduction you discuss the uniqueness of Kohelet's search as anthropological as opposed to cosmological. Can you discuss the difference between these two ideas and the way Kohelet chooses to go about this search for meaning? Yeah, so Kohelet, I think, is not Aristotelian in the sense of asking big questions. Uh, I was a philosophy major, and that's always been a field close to my heart. And so he's not saying, what is beauty? What is justice? He's saying, this is the way I have experienced money, right? I've experienced wealth. I've experienced other people. I've experienced uh, problems in government. And it was, he's, he's not making a claim that the world is a certain way. He's making a claim that his life is a certain way. And so I think that that's a very, that's very different. I, I want to share with you, uh, I would say it was a really maturing experience for, for myself, uh, particularly as a young teacher. When I was an undergraduate at Yeshiva University, where I where I proudly teach now, um, I went to Australia for the summer. I went on a program called Counterpoint. We had a, a group of Yeshiva University students who went in our summer. Australian uh, went to Australia and New Zealand, and Australians uh, winter. And we worked with students, and uh, we ran Shabbatonim. We became very close with students. It was very far away. It took four different legs of the flight to get there at that time. It was in the eighties. And a few days after we left, there was a car accident and two students were killed. Two of the students we worked with were killed. And one of the students I was particularly close with um, wrote me a letter. And it was, uh, you know, how could God do this? How, how did this happen to me? Like, they were so good. They were so young. They had their whole lives ahead of them. You know, you imagine exactly the kind of conversation. I don't know how long the letter took to get to me. And being the philosophy major that I was, I photocopied articles about why bad things happen to good people, right? And it was I, you know, like I, I, I sort of said, let me, let me bring to bear the things that I know and the things that I've learned. And I sent this package, it probably cost me $25 in stamps, and I never heard from her again. And she was right not to, to write to me. Later on, I was doing my, I was doing a master's in uh, the Institute of Education in London as part of the University of London. And I came across an article where it basically warns educators to make sure they make a distinction between that which is philosophical and that which is psychological. She was asking me a psychological question, but the language that she understood to ask it was philosophical. So instead of saying, I am hurting and I want to know how to manage my hurt, what can you do for me? What can you tell me? She said, how do I believe in God? But she didn't really want to, she wasn't asking a question of belief. And it was my fault that I didn't understand it for what it was. And I say that as a long way of saying, long way of answering, I think the Kohelet is one person's interpretation of a very unique world. I mean, who has that kind of money, right? I mean, I know that people do, but it was, who has that kind of money? Who has that kind of power? Who has that level of, um, of, of sagacity to like really understand a world and to give you his world, see the, the privilege that we have 
that someone sort of took notes, if you will, on the world as he experienced them. And that's that's what I mean by anthropological as opposed to cosmo cosmological. I think, you know, Michelet is trying to tell you, do this and don't do that. Right? It's trying to give you its own way of ordering the world. Kohelet's not ordering the world. In fact, if anything, you, know, you put a podcast for the perplexed, so Kohelet really could be your mascot. Um, you know, <laughs> I think you, if you're honest and you read it, you just say, I yeah. finished this book and I understand it less than when I wrote this big book on it. I understand it less than I did before. How is that? Right. Yeah, it's it's uh, very unique. And what you just said about um, his unique perspective, it kind of reminds me of a Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Mm, yeah. He's, he's like the leader of the world, but he, at the same time, he's giving us the notes to his life, like his diary. Yeah. And it is kind of Michelet overlap, but um, there's, there's that same perspective where you're like, you know, you're getting, you're getting something from someone who has it all. It's, mm. it's a unique perspective. So uh, thank you for yeah. that. And there's also something very unique that comes. Wait, I want to, I want to say one other thing, and if yeah. that's okay with you, you know, Kohelet does not minimize the importance of money. He does not. You know, he doesn't say, oh, none of this was worth it. Mm. It was, it was all, he says, I, I enjoyed my wealth and that's what I got out of my wealth. And was, he's, he's basically saying you can, you can get enjoyment. You can get pleasure out of it. Just don't expect it to give you anything more than that. And I think that's very, very sobering, especially right yeah. now. We live in an extremely material culture. We live at the, as, 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 as Jews, Orthodox Jews. I mean, the affluence in our community is off the charts. Um, and we have to understand what the limits are of this, not the limits of what we can achieve, but what did you think it was going to buy you? Because open up Koala, Koala's going to tell you what it's going to buy you. It's going to buy you a nice time. That's all it's going to buy. It's going to buy you a better cut of steak. It's not going to buy you happiness. It's not going to buy you peace in your family. It's not going to buy you better leaders. In fact, it may make come worse leaders will come out of it. So I think there's a, yeah, there's a sobering of it. Absolutely. And what you just said is so appropriate because we actually just interviewed Rabbi Jeremy Weeder on, you know, affluenza, I guess. You yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, definitely. That's that's an important I think point. Rabbi Weeder is I mean, he's he's such a unique and powerful, powerful voice on this. Um, we're, I think we're just we, we haven't really come to terms with the with the impact. And uh, I, I'm very grateful to him and for, you know, for um, he's a colleague of mine in Yeshiva University. It takes bravery to do that. For sure. Definitely. So um, I, I want to go back to something that's interesting because there's a lot of misconceptions about Kohelet also um, that I'm thinking about. One of them is the fact that it's 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 always affiliated with like um, people usually connected to like sadness. But mm. the word the word simcha appears more times in Kohelet than all of the five books of Moses combined. Mm -hmm. And um, there are some calls to action that are positive, like rejoice, you know, after after some negative comments. So um, what's your take on on this? You know, what's the mood of the book? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all for rejoicing. Don't get me wrong. I think that's uh, um, I think the mood of the book probably resembles the mood that people, you know, resembles the moods that we're we're in, you know, even in the course of a day, we sort of have a full range of emotions. And I think that's one of the nice things about the book is that it provides the range. I always say this in painting because we talked about Kenneth Clark to to paint something of full value is to paint the lightest to the darkest shade and that's what gives paintings their depth so if you imagine what gives what gives writing its depth is or a class right you go oh i left i cried I, you know like i i had a range of experiences and i think uh the book that be prepared for that and and also look for the book's light moments look for the advice that has nothing to do with despair um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about Hevel uh, and and maybe sort of reinterpreting it to so that you don't open the book and say all is vanity, because if that were the case, just close the book now. Like we're done here. You know, nothing's worthwhile. Right. So what could I possibly write that would be worthwhile? I imagine the author saying. Um, and and I, I think that's that's not the case. Um, one thing that I I think I'm not going to say this is my unique discovery. And if I could write more about it, I certainly would. Um, it, it, when when you see the statements of Simcha are 
are very often right after something quite heavy. So pay attention to context. We tend to decontextualize things, right? We tend to take verses out of the context. And then and then we have only a, a fractional reading of them because we, you know, if, I, if you took a sentence out of this podcast, but it, it was meant to be with a, a string of other other you know adjectives verbs nouns um it would be distorted and so i think there's a distortion of the simcha there and the and the despair so if you come off of despair and you go straight into simcha then what i think is happening is what i'll call a theology of distraction in other words you cannot resolve things but what you can do is distract people um, and then they will uh, come back to themselves. Um, and maybe I, I just want to make sure. Uh, wait, hold on. Can you hear the dog? No, I don't hear anything. You can't. Okay, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was just like, so distracted by the dog and I'm talking about distraction. So I'm going to just take a step back. Um, so what's a theology of distraction? Uh, the best comparison I can make is to some of the work that John Gottman has done in relationships. So there are irreconcilable differences in couples. And that's probably true in friendships. That's true with uh, with bosses and employees. Irreconcilable differences. And what you can do is you can say, you know, we're going to have the same argument and we're going to have it again and we're going to have it again and we're going to have it again and we're not going to make any progress on it. And the fact is, one of the things that Gottman says is having better listening capacity is not necessarily changing anything. It means you're communicating better about your irreconcilable differences, but you're not actually resolving them. He says, instead, take a pause, right? Do something that you enjoy, um, which will remind you why you're the, in this relationship in the first place. So that if, if we can take that lens, the Gottman lens, and we can put it on Kohelet, which I know is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, if, you know, very different circumstances and, 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 and different kinds of writing. But the idea that you can be in this deep despair and then say, I'm not gonna resolve this. So the best thing that I can do so that I can still embrace life is to do something that I deeply enjoy. I deeply enjoy having a very festive meal with friends. Now you say to yourself, that didn't make, that didn't make the injustice go away, not for one second. But what it enabled me to do is it enabled me to say, I love life. And that's where I think people don't understand Kohelet. I see Kohelet as a person who loves life. And so he's reflecting on these things. But ultimately, he says, I'm going to do what I can do in this world. You know what? I have money. Baruch Hashem, I have money. I can make a vineyard. I can have a great meal. I can, I can do these things. And I must do these things because I have to show. I mean, it, otherwise, why would you canonize this book? You have to be able to show that the that, that Kohelet really deeply loved his life. Mm -hmm. So the simcha coming after uh, word, after, after, um, after moments of despair is the simcha in spite of it. That's what you're saying. It's, it's not in spite of it. I'm going to say as a response to it. And as maybe I haven't, right. Maybe I haven't articulated it sort of enough but but to me, the fact that he keeps repeating this, it's almost because we don't get it, right? We keep thinking, I'm going to go back to the same problem. You're not going to solve this problem. You're not going to solve why good people suffer. Not There's not any, I mean, if you do, that's amazing. And then you really will have demystified not only Judaism, but every other thing in life. Mm -hmm. um, and so you say to yourself, oh, am I going to be uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and say like, you know, should I kill myself? Should I have a cup of coffee? Which apparently he never said that, but that's always, you know, cited in his name. So you're going to be an existentialist philosopher and you're going to say, I shouldn't kill myself, but I shouldn't live either. That's not Kohelet. It was, it's, it's, it was, I think that there are existential questions. He's asking about his place in the universe. But I think at the end of the day, he's asking what has enduring worth. And when you can't figure out what has enduring worth, what actually gives you pleasure in the moment? And do that. Because we just have, we're not here for a long time. Mm. And God gave those things to us. In the simcha, all those simcha, it's it's always because God gave us permission to do those things. So when people think he's a hedonist, it's like, you don't know anything about hedonism. That is, that is not accurate, right? It was hedonists don't think this is what God gave me permission to do. Hedonists think this is what I want to do. And I don't care what God says, right? So I think that there's that there's subtleties here that are important to important to bear in mind.
Why, why do you think that aside from the very end, um, God's name or God, but even more so um, God as a response to these problems that he's, you know, elaborating throughout the entire book. Why is that not used? Well, God, I mean, God does appear in the book. God does appear in the book. Uh, the way that God appears, though, is not in the Eov sense of I am in dialogue with God about these things. Well, I think that's probably the disarming thing, right? It's that it's, you know, he'll mention God gave for me permission or God does this. It's it's almost remote. It's observations about yes. the way God operates as opposed to the personal God. You know, God, help me out here, right? It's it's not the David Hamelech, you know, uh, you know, uh, crying and 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 waiting for God's salvation or thanking God. It's it's not it's not like that. And in in that sense, one might say it's not spiritual in the way that other books are. What um, I meant, yes, yeah, yes. it's not. It does not have that. It does not have that. And so if you're looking for that, that's complicated. You know, it, 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 you know, what we do with Esther and, you know, God's name doesn't appear is so many Mepharshim say, you know, God appears everywhere. You just, God's name doesn't appear everywhere, you know, and here you see God's name does appear in a lot of places in Kohelet, but not as the personal God. Fascinating. Yeah. All right. And regarding authorship. Um, can you give us a consensus of the scholarly position regarding uh, the authorship of Kohelet and where you sort of land in the matter? And no. You-, <laughs> um, you know, I think I think that's a hard question. Um, I, you know, I I totally appreciate the rabbinic notion that Shlomo Amelech wrote this book. I mean, everything leads to Shlomo in many ways, right? I mean, Kohelet, I'm a king, and king of Yerushalayim. Um, I, I think there's something very um, intriguing about the idea that that someone would write different types of things at different stages in life, right? So you write Shir Hashirim with ardor the, of youth, and you write Mishlei with the, you know, the uh, sort of settling in of middle age and wisdom. And then there's this sort of the decrepitude, you know, sort of uh, comes in and then you, you're you more morose. Um, I, I think that's in some ways it oversimplifies what each of these farm really is, right? It really does accomplish. Uh, but I certainly appreciate it. I, I think we, you know, we have hints at it. I, I think it was probably written by someone in a court. Uh, we don't have, we, we, outside of that rabbinic statement, we really don't have conclusive textual proof about it. Um, it certainly, in, certainly in modern scholars don't, don't think that Shlomo wrote it. I, I just use the term Kohelet to, to honor who Kohelet was. If Kohelet was Shlomo or if Kohelet was was someone else, it, it matters less to me. Um, you know, I, I understand why it, why it is, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm undercutting the significance of the book by being unsure of who wrote it. I think, I, I actually want to say in general, I think a lot of people spend a, too much time thinking about authorship and not enough time thinking about content. Yeah. Um, and sometimes when they can't figure out who the author is, they they sort of dismiss the book, right? Certainly that's been my, my um, you know, lim- limited experience with uh, sometimes in the academic community where you write something off. Oh, it's uh, multiple authors. Uh, what significance? Uh, all right, let, can we get beyond that and, and talk about what this book is actually about? Um, so yeah, so that's not the answer that you wanted. I'm not going to demystify that. That, for that you. is the answer that we wanted because that, unfortunately people, you know, the average Orthodox Jew is not studying Kohelet. Um, and I, maybe they're reading it once a year or whatever it is, but to actually delve into it, um, it's something that we want to really champion is a return to fundamentals and to actually start appreciating these wisdom texts Yeah, um, because you know, whoever wrote it doesn't make a difference. You know, like we, we these are, right. it was, it's canon and it's, it was canon for a reason. So Hazal right. held it to right. a very high regard. So who cares, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say who cares. I wouldn't go and that's why I do deal with this. I think it's important to, you know, and, and footnotes for the people who want to delve into the scholarship. There's, there are a lot of, 
a lot of books in the reference section at the end um, for people who want to do more work because I think there's more work to be done. So it's it's not really a question of not caring. It's it's when you get to a ceiling where you say, we're not going to know the answer to this. So it's not like dealing with the five books or the Chamishe Chumshe Torah. It's, you know, we're not, we're not asking the same questions about divine revelation. Now we're really asking historically, who do we, th- who's most likely, you know, and part of that is we look at loan words, we look at words that don't seem to fit and what what generally period, what general period they're from. So that's that's the sort of the detective work of biblical study. Um, it's not an area of of, of my expertise, although I, I wish it were. Um, but I, I try not to to get stumped by the author questions. Well said. So um Hevel, the word Hevel is probably the most important word in the book of Kohelet. The meaning of this word is difficult to translate. It also seems to change in context as the book goes on. What does this word mean? How does its usage change as the book goes on? And why is this word so central to the entire book? Yeah, uh, well, um, I mean, thank you for asking that question. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I guess if you said what three letters sum up the book, it would it would be those um not even a pasuk but a word and i think that's very rare in biblical terms to say you actually could encapsulate this book in one word and this is the word and i'll tell you why i think you can encapsulate it so of course there was the king james 1611 translation of hevel as vanity the minute you say vanity it becomes pejorative, right? You think, oh, you're so vain, right? They even have a song about it, um, right? So, you know, vanity, the opposite of humility, the the sense of um, of purposelessness, futility. And um, there've been a lot of translations. Uh, Michael B. Fox's book on Coelho was magnificent and actually two books because um, he did the JPS commentary and he did his, uh, he did a, a separate book, um, I, I, you know, he go, he talks about absurdity, right? And so there's, the, you could go Kafkaesque on this, right? You can go King James on this, you can go Kafkaesque on this. So I'm going to go Alter on this. Robert Alter translated in his translation, uh, and he completed some years ago the translation of uh, of all the of all the biblical books. Um, he brings support for Hevel as breath, and I think that's just a magnificent translation because first of all, it's neutral. It's morally neutral. It was, it's not saying this is a waste of time. You open it up, this is a waste of time. He's basically in ob- observing life, Kohelet is saying things are like breath. They don't, they have transitory value. And it was, it's here and it's gone, just the way that we breathe. But breathing is also involuntary. And if you stop breathing, you have no life. So there's something ne- that's necessary about Hevel, about the breath. All is breath. Certainly, if you're meditators, you know the importance of breathing. I think about this every morning when I say, Kol Hallelujah. I always like take a deep breath in and release and do the same thing for the second pasuk, even the repetition. It's sort of getting you into that meditative space of inhale and exhale. So in that space, I think Kohelet's question isn't necessarily the search for meaning, which was the subtitle of my book or the title of my book. It's really, is there any enduring worth in the world? I think that's his question. So he says, actually, I'm not sure there's anything enduring. Even big buildings that I built, even deep rooted vineyards and trees that I planted sometime in the future, those things will fall apart. I don't know if you've ever been to the Colosseum, right? Uh, my trip to the Colosseum was terrible, um, but you know you see like the ruins of a civilization. Um, I just want to share this observation with you because it really speaks to the Hevel experience. So, if you're a student of Jewish history, you go to the Colosseum, you know Talmud, you know the Jews who were gladiators, like how oppressed we were by Edom, by Rome, and the whole thing. I was I was so overwhelmed by it. I sort of left my children for a few minutes. Like I just. I just stood in the ruins and I just, I was so disgusted to be there. And, um, and then, and then a gladiator saved it for me. You know, that there's these, these gladiators, they dress up like gladiators. They wear the outfit and you can give them a Euro and they take a picture. So as we're walking by, my, my boys, my husband wore a kippot, um, and a gladiator said, Manishma, right? He's like in Hebrew. So like, how's it going? Right. So all of a sudden I was like, thank you so much. 
because all of this is Hevel. All of this, you thought that you were building a, 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 an empire that would last forever and it fell apart. But here Hebrew, Hebrew has been revitalized, right? In our day, right? People speaking an ancient language. So we don't have the ruins. We have the, the words and the words are revived. And, and it's just, it's, it's, it's so remarkable to me. So I think when you, when you're in Kohelet, if you translate Hevel as what, what has transitory value versus enduring value. And then what he's saying is actually, because there's nothing that you can create in life that will have enduring value, right? Sof davar kol nishma, was do mitzvot, do things of purpose. He says, and also be in the transitory moment, value the transitory because it's going to go away and you're going to stop breathing one day. And so that meal that you could have had with friends, that call that you could have made, um, that flower that you could have smelled, you let it go because you're so busy worrying about your mortality. Just worry about your pleasure. Worry about your delight. Think, don't worry. Think about the, the God, think about God's world that he gave you. Make a blessing. It's like, I, 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 that's what I'm saying. I find the book so inspiring, but, but you can, if you read that one word one way, it's going to be a totally different read of the book. Yeah, you can you can read it as very negative or very stoic. Like it's it's very. I think it's very stoic for sure. Yeah, that yeah. Message, I, the message especially that you just said. You know, it's just uh, you know, be in the moment. Don't don't just let life pass you. Where we have God gave us the world to appreciate as well, not just you know, not just the spiritual but also the physical. Right. I, I mean, I, I'm going to go back to painting. You know, there you know, there's painters who painted the memento mori, like the reminder that you will die. You know, there's sometimes a skull. There's like a set of pearls. There's a clock. You know, they. Um, but when you look at paintings of fruit and paintings of flowers, and sometimes you'll see, if you look closely, like, oh, this is so beautiful. You'll see a fly. You'll see spots on the petals. You know, they're browning. In other words, the artist is saying to you. Why, why is the artist painting this? Because flowers used to cost so much money. And so like, could you just paint them and just hold on to them? In a painting, you could freeze frame the flowers. Ooh. But then the artist tells you, you can't actually do that because the flowers, the minute you, you cut them, they're already dying and that's okay. I mean, I, I talk about a conversation between Freud, the older Freud and the young poet Rilke, who's like so disgusted. They're going on a walk in the summer and Rilke's thinking like all this beauty, it's all going to die. And Freud doesn't have a problem with it. He says it's transitory value. Why would you be disgusted? The opposite. Lean into the beauty of it. And so, you know, I think that's what Kohala has taught me ultimately, to lean into the beauty of it. Amazing. Beautiful. Dr. Brown, why do you think that today, at least, you know, I could be wrong with what I'm about to say, but I don't know. I get the feeling that today people are not as introspective. They're not as reflective um just like people don't um they're they're not maybe not searching for meaning like like you know our grandfathers did like uh i don't i feel like today the world is is just kind of like fast-paced cutthroat you know uh, and and there's we don't have people who are reflecting on things the way you see kohelet like takes a step back and looks at the world and says like, you know, what, what's going on here? You know what I mean? And today I feel like it's missing in the world in general. Right. So I, I, I don't, I, I'm not down on the world in quite that way. Please call me Erica, not Dr. Brown, unless no, no, you're I'm off that ledge. That's what I'm telling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think part of this has to do with the selfie culture. And Rabbi Sachs was very, very conscious of the sort of I versus the we, you know, the iPod, the iPhone. Um, and I, 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 I find, you know, I was just, I was just, uh, I was just uh, watching someone take a photo of herself in her situation, right, where where she was standing next to nature, and you know, priming herself, making sure that she looks good. Who knows where that selfie is going? And I thought to myself, put your phone down. And look at the world and you are not the center of it. And the world is much bigger. And, and it, it is, we have taught people that they are the center of a universe and all, all lenses shine on me. And then of course, we don't understand why people have so much anxiety because the, fo the hyper-focus on the self makes you actually sort of 
inured to the importance of what other people are going through, right? It's, it, it cuts off the empathy, it cuts off the connection. So I think to myself, and I don't want to be one of those old fogies says, oh, turn down the cell phone, you know, like give it. Um, <laughs> although if you took my cell phone away, I would, it would only be a vacation for me. And I do spend, thank God, many hours of a day disconnected from my phone so that I can have a creative life. Um, I, 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 I worry about it about how we reverse some of the trends of technology that have made us not reflective because we're not thinking about our place in the universe as the universe is wonderful and we have to earn it. We're thinking ourselves like I am amazing and the world is terrible. That's a, that's a very, very hard way. It's a very hard way to live. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think, I think for me, that's generational. I grew up, uh, not thinking a lot about myself, not getting compliments every day from teachers and parents. You know, it, it just it just wasn't the way that we were raised. We were raised to earn the world, earn a right to 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 contribute to the world. Um, and I, I I worry, and it's part of the affluence uh, you know uh, issue as well. I will say that 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 a lot of what you're talking about, I call them the acquisition years, and I I'd love to write more about it. I think there there's a time in one's life when we're just sort of, you know, David Brooks calls it the first mountain. I'll call it the acquisition years where, you know, you think the mountain is your education, your car, the neighborhood you live in, the number of kids you have, the clothes that they wear. And you're, you're going, and you, you know, for those who are fortunate, they go up that mountain, they get to the top and they go, is that all? I'm 35 years old. Is that all? You know, and then, of course, things start to unravel. Someone in your family gets sick. You lose a parent. There's a divorce. There's a move. Whatever it is, a loss of job. And all of a sudden, you come tumbling down. And that's like David Brooks says, you know, then it's time for the second mountain. What's the mountain you're going to climb? Um, and mountains are very important in, in biblical tradition, too. So I, I think a lot about that, about the mountains that we scale. That's, and see, that's when I see people asking those reflective questions. Because... All, the world was supposed to look a certain way. I was supposed to get married at this age. I was supposed to be able to have children. I was my I was supposed to live forever, and my parents were supposed to live forever. So then, you know, uh, illness and life it, it changes. I, I, here's what's unfortunate: we lack language to handle some of these situations because we're not as reflective as we need to be because the acquisition gives us one language and that's the language of the consumer. Um, that's the language of the consumer. I mean, when I grew up, there was one movie in the movie theater and they played it for, for months and you saw it a few times. I don't know how many times I saw ET. I, I don't know. It's probably a world's record. Who knows? Like that was what was playing. You went out. That's what you did. We're not, we're not there people. It takes so much mental effort and emotional effort just to stay still today the saturation of knowledge i don't know how we filter all that i don't know how we filter all of it but i think i think we need to introduce reflective language and we need to do that in school um i think children are natural philosophers and we have a lot of research on it uh, i think in, in in they're already asking questions about meaning and about death um and about god and we we only service and grow that when we can uh, commend those questions and sit and sit and ask them. Not we don't have to have pet answers. We could just sit in the wandering posture with them. Maybe that's what Chazal meant that uh, prophecy will be among the children at the time. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Or the children return the hearts of the fathers, right? Like Leheshiv Levavot. I think I think there is something uh, there is something to that, and I I do feel very optimistic. Um, I think there's a there's just this backlash to all the to all the consumerism. I, I I feel that it's coming. It's not here yet, but I feel it's going to come. It's definitely going to come, and we we share your optimism, and we really just we're so thankful and grateful that you were able to make the time for us. Oh, this has been such a great hour. It's really it's just very uh, it's very holy to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we hope to do this again to discuss other books of yours. Well, I'm a little tired right now. Kohel took a lot out of me. So. Take a break. Take a break. Much deserved break. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, for all our viewers, uh, Dr. Erica Brown has 
multitudes of books that, uh, you know, everyone should check out. Magid Publishing, you write for Magid Publishing and what other publishing houses? Um, I wrote for Simon & Schuster and Jewish Lights and did one book with Berman House. So, uh, yeah, and I feel very, very fortunate to have wonderful publishers and my friends at Magid are a treasure. Amazing. And everyone should take a look. Um, the books are incredible. And Dr. Brown, you're incredible. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you for having me. That was fantastic. Thank you so much, guys. Anytime. Anytime. Best conversation I've had all week. Oh, really? Thank you. <laughs> we really appreciate it. Thank you. Right. Thanks. Take care. Good night. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.